He is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. This is the greatest day in the history of the world. You know, I didn't always think that. You know, I thought Christmas was, was really, really special. And, and of course it is. We have to have Christmas in order to have Easter and Resurrection Sunday. Uh, but I remember uh, growing up as a child and uh, thinking, wow, Christmas is really neat, you know. So, uh, but anyway, uh, I remember being in the UK. I was part of Living Sound in those days. It was Easter Sunday morning, driving to the uh, service at Beth Shan Tabernacle, big church in, uh, in Manchester. And it just hit me, without Easter, everything else would be meaningless. And so this is the greatest day in the history of the world. And you can add any other superlatives you want to, but it is exactly that. I'd like to just pray for one more moment. Father, thank you for this glorious day. Thank you for the palpable joy that we are experiencing together as we've worshipped you. We've sung these magnificent songs, Christ is risen. And Father, now I pray that even over these next moments that uh, the words that come from my mouth will be anointed and led by your Holy Spirit. Anything that is from Joel, I pray that it will fade quickly away, but that your ever-living and powerful word will continue to work in us from this day to all of eternity. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness from faith to faith, just as it is written, the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. And as Jim Garrett on Friday uh, spoke so powerfully about the cost that was paid. He that knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And that's what Easter is all about. It is the power of the gospel in living color, in all of its power. Some call that last verse the divine exchange. God took upon him our sin that we might in exchange receive as the most incredible gift, the righteousness of God in Christ. Uh, there's a prevailing sense of the love of God in the messages that we heard from Bill, from Jim over this holy week. And, and I, if there's one thought I'd like to leave with you, it is the amazing love of God this morning. My dad talked about the Chinese a lot, and when he was alive, China was the most populous nation in the world. Uh, I'm not sure it's still true. I think India is getting close to taking the number one slot there. But uh, anyway, uh, I like to quote Chinese brethren from time to time. There was, a, in fact, this is a very, very current story. Uh, a, a Christian family, probably uh, pretty young, kids in uh, primary school in Beijing, and uh, the pressure they live on, there's actually a political officer in the classes that makes sure that the answers that are given are in line with the party line. 
And so uh, the, uh, the child raised in his godly home skips the questions where he has to take a view on politics. And he, he's marked down on that, but so far the uh, teacher allows for him to do that. But anyway, the, uh, Andrew, uh, or Aaron, I think was the name of the father, he was the last to come to faith. And what he said was so simple but so remarkable. He said he would go to the house church meeting in Beijing with his wife. The kids were there. And he, you know, really appreciated the warm welcome and uh, the teaching that he heard from God's word. But uh, then he mentioned that there was this one song that they sang at the beginning of each service. And the first line of the song was, do you know the never-changing promise? Jesus loves you. And that song just got to him, and he came to faith in Christ. This morning, I'd uh, like to read John's uh, report or version of the uh, Easter story. And I'd like for us to think in terms of uh, an apology for the faith this morning. Peter uh, wrote in 1 Peter 3 that we are always to, to be ready to give a defense for the, the gospel, but to give it with graciousness and with kindness. And uh, I'm just convinced that going forward, and even as we heard the word on evangelism just a couple of weeks ago, that we will need to give a full-orbed defense for the gospel going forward in many settings with grace, with kindness, but with truth. I think uh, Generation Zen, is that the last generation in college these days? Uh, only about 10% of them are, are practicing Christians in a nation where some time ago we were saying 65% are born-again Christians. And uh, that generation and all generations need to be reached again with the gospel in a powerful, powerful way. So let's, let's read uh, the report uh, that John has of this incredible day. And uh, I'd kind of like to, for us to think this morning that we're, we're in, a, in a courtroom. And uh, I'm going to ask three uh, witnesses to step forward to give their report of what happened. And uh, I think I'd like to have four witnesses actually come forward. First, Malchus. Anybody remember Malchus? Uh, his testimony would be very brief, but I'd just like for him to kind of describe the scene uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane as the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And I'd like to ask him, Malchus, what did, what did you think when Peter got out his sword? And <laughs> it's not recorded, but uh, I think... He, he, he probably thought, I'm going to lose my life here. And he probably was so thankful that Peter was not a great swordsman and just lost an ear. But uh, anyway, the love of Christ in that setting, Jesus rebukes Peter, put the sword away, picks up the, the ear off the ground and heals Malchus. I mean, that marked that man for the rest of his life. And I hope, I hope it brought him to faith as well as, as he heard what happened at Calvary in the next several days. And then, of course, the resurrection. But the others I'd like to call 
our uh, Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, to hear her testimony. And then uh, Thomas. Remember, Thomas had some, some issues, but he became a great, great missionary to India. Uh, in fact, if you ever travel India, and especially southern India, you, hear, you meet hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Thomases. I mean, they love that name, and it's because Thomas came with the greatest message they had ever heard. And then, of course, uh, we need to have Peter come and give his testimony as well. And the struggle he went through, but how he was recommissioned. And in fact, I'm, I was thinking yesterday in prayer that, that this could be, in fact, a recommissioning service for us this morning. Even as Jesus uh, first said to the disciples uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Peter and Andrew and the others, follow me. He uh, repeated that phrase at the end of the book of John. Uh, when Peter is restored uh, in faith, and Peter indeed followed for the rest of his life. And history tells us that he felt so unworthy to be crucified, he requested that he be crucified upside down. So, yeah, I'd like to call those witnesses and have them tell their story. <clears throat> Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb, both were running. Would have loved to see that race. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But here's where Mary's testimony comes in. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels on white, in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. 
Woman, he said, why are you crying? Why is, who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. That, that had to be the most incredible moment. I was talking with our family about that passage over dinner this week, and Natasha especially said, that had to be incredible. Jesus calls her by name. In fact, it's the most beautiful thing I think we can say to anybody is call them by name and say, Jesus, Jesus loves you, Bill. Jesus loves you, Dallas. Jesus loves you, Tom. And uh, anyway, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means father. Or, or teacher, Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them, that he had said these things uh, to her. You know, uh, about the court case thing, I'll get to Thomas's part, but I'll just maybe just share it in story form. When Jesus on this same day came to the disciples, uh, in that room that they were in, afraid of the Jews. Uh, he spoke to them. In fact, let me read it. Uh, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed. When they saw the Lord, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, and this is a really important moment. This is when the church was born. Jesus, the resurrected Lord, breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. But Thomas was not a part of that moment. He it was somewhere else. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in here and see and feel the Lord's compassion for Thomas. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. 
Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas the doubter, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Amen. As I've said, and we've all agreed, Resurrection Sunday is the most important day in the history of mankind. But there might be somebody here thinking, well, you're making a pretty incredible claim. Uh, you might be saying, you know, I'm kind of like Thomas. I need to be convinced. I need more proof. You might be saying, I would love to know this as a fact, but how can I be absolutely sure? Or maybe, maybe I, I've got family, I've got friends. How can I convince them? that, in fact, Resurrection Sunday is the most incredibly important day in the history of mankind. How can I convince them? Can you help me to give a defense for the gospel? Flavius Josephus, a respected Jewish historian and military leader, whose dates were A.D. 37 to about A.D. 100. So in other words, he lived just just a few years after Jesus' resurrection, he wrote in his Antiquities of the Jews about A.D. 93, 94, about Jesus. This is what he said. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, as teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure, he drew over to him many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named after him, are not extinct at this day. We're part of that tribe, guys, ladies. A tribe following Jesus, the risen Christ. Let me just give you a, a little bit more of this kind of a defense. William Craig debated Bart Ehrman back in about 2007. The uh, debate was called, Is There Historical Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus? And I want to... Craig was taking the position there, in fact, is. His first fact, fact one, 
after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb as a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea is unlikely to be a Christian invention. In fact, according to the late John Robinson of Cambridge, the burial of Jesus in the tomb is one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus. Fact number two, on the Sunday after his crucifixion, the tomb was found empty by Mary Magdalene and the other woman with her. Again, uh, William McCraig states, in patriarchal Jewish society, the testimony of women was not highly regarded. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus, who I just mentioned earlier, says that women weren't even permitted to serve as witnesses in a Jewish court of law. Now, in light of this fact, how remarkable it is that it is women who are the discoverers of Jesus' empty tomb. Any later legendary account would certainly have made disciples like Peter and John discover the empty tomb. The fact that it is women rather than men who are the discoverers of the empty tomb is best explained by the fact that they were the chief witnesses to the fact of the empty tomb. And the gospel writers faithfully record what for them was an awkward and embarrassing fact. Where were the guys? Yeah. Fact three, on different occasions and under various circumstances over a 40-day period, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. And we've all read, of course, Paul's uh, list of eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the, the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born Given the very early date of Paul's information, as well as his personal acquaintance with the people in this report, these appearances cannot be dismissed as legend. This passage is considered an early Christian creed and was very likely passed on by Peter and James to Paul three to five years after the resurrection. So that's how, how, how recent that was, and it was passed on to Paul. Fact number four, are you still with me? Or am, I, am I wearing you out? Okay, okay, brother, we're going. Okay. So, yeah, well, come next Sunday too, okay, would you? Okay. <laughs> the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. Think of the situation that the disciples faced following Jesus' crucifixion. Their leader was dead, 
and Jewish messianic ex expectations had no idea of a Messiah who instead of triumphing over Israel's enemies would be shamefully executed by them as a criminal. Jewish beliefs about the afterlife produced anyone's rising from the dead to glory and immortality before the general resurrection of the dead at the end of the world. Uh, sorry, uh, they precluded anyone's rising from the dead before the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples suddenly came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. But the obvious question arises, what in the world caused them to believe such an un-Jewish and outlandish thing? Luke Johnson, a New Testament scholar at Emory muses, some sort of powerful transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. And N.T. Wright, some of you recognize his name, an eminent British theologian, uh, concludes, that is why, as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. If the enemies of Jesus had taken his body, they would have surely wanted to display it somehow to prove that here's the body. But in fact, they could not, and of course they did not. If his disciples had taken Jesus' body, they would have never sacrificed their lives and possessions for what they knew was a lie. In fact, 10 of the 12 disciples, as we know, died martyrs' deaths. Mark's empty tomb story account was written within seven years of these events. Let me give you one uh, more, I think, great defense of the gospel from first, uh, actually from Acts chapter 2. Peter, after he was restored, after Pentecost, in fact, on the day of Pentecost, uh, preaches, of all places, in Jerusalem, right where the execution happened, right where the resurrection happened. Peter preaches one of the most incredible sermons. Let me just read a bit of it. Men of Israel, listen to this Jesus of Nazareth. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold of him. Uh, another German theologian, Paul Alphys, comments on this. The resurrection proclamation, which was Peter's incredible sermon, could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. And what, what he's saying is they would have massacred and killed Peter and the disciples right there for such blasphemy. But no, there was no defense. This is what happened. Christ is risen. He rose 
from the dead. And one more quote here. Brother, I'm not going to wear you out either, okay? Uh, the Jews did not deny the empty tomb. They suggested a stolen body. Dr. Paul Mayer states, positive evidence from a hostile source. In essence, if a source admits a fact that it is decided not in its favor, in fact, establishes that that fact is genuine. In other words, the Jews never uh, argued the fact that there was an empty tomb. There was, uh, uh, Rob, you'd appreciate this point, there was a great guard set in front of that tomb. I would think, you know, special forces kind of guys, you know, and uh, the angel appears and uh, they are so filled with fear. They, they, they fall over like, like dead men. And, and then they run to the chief priest and they told them everything that had happened. In fact, they were witnesses of an empty grave. And so the Jews, the priests had to come up with an idea and they said, hey, we will pay you money. You tell this story that the body was stolen. And John tells us that even to this day, some Jews and some believe that story. But Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And just let's, for the last moments, uh, think about Peter. What an incredible guy. Remember in uh, Luke 5 and all the other uh, passages when Jesus calls Peter, uh, they have this great catch of fish. I mean, miraculous. They fished all night, caught nothing. And Jesus says, put the net on the right side of the boat and this incredible catch. And then Peter, uh, hearing that Jesus is going to be uh, captured and will be killed, uh, just before the Garden of Gethsemane situation, Peter swears that if everybody forsakes you, I will never forsake you. And Jesus says to him, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And, uh, and so we know the story so well. He's uh, outside the house of the high priest, a coolish, if not cold night, he uh, joins the others, warming his hands around a coal fire. And uh, it's amazing. It's, it's the servant girls that can get to him. They say, aren't, aren't you one of his disciples? And, and Jesus, or Peter, uh, Peter swears he is not. And, he, he, uh, and, and it's repeated two other times. And then the, the third time, he swears, I mean, it was just, unbelievable he would say those words and the cock crows and Jesus or Peter remembers Jesus words and he uh, went out and wept bitterly he wept bitterly and uh, then uh, of course the resurrection Peter is uh, the second on the, in the race to the, to the grave. John was the, uh, the, the sprinter. Hopefully Peter was the long-distance guy, but they, uh, they got there, and uh, Peter had seen all that, and then uh, the disciples went back, uh, and, uh, and then two days later, 
or maybe it was maybe a few more days than that, uh, they were again uh, together on the Sea of Galilee. Again, Peter had said, I'm going fishing. Uh, you can put a lot into that thought, but you know, I, I, I think he may have, may have thought, hey, I was a part of Jesus' gospel band, but there's no place for me anymore. I've denied him. He's risen. He is who he said he is, but I have disqualified myself. I think he could have been thinking those kind of thoughts, or maybe he think, I just need to get away. I just need to get away and, and figure this out because this is the greatest miracle that has ever happened, and I swore that I don't know this man. I mean, what am I to do? And so, yeah, Jesus shows up on the shore, and he has started a fire, is making breakfast. Uh, and then the, the incredible recommissioning service. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? And he uses the word akapais, the verb form of agape. And Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he uses the filial form of love. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Again, using the agape, uh, verb form agape, me. And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I filio you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, and this is what Jesus said, do you filio me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you filio me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. But you also know that I denied you. You also know that I've failed in the most unbelievable way. But I, I do love you. And Jesus said, Feed my sheep, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. That described the upside down crucifixion that would come. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Whether, you, whether you're in deep sorrow as Mary Magdalene was until that moment when the world went upside down for her, she was filled with the great joy that we're experiencing this morning. Whether you're a doubting Thomas this morning, you have heard the gospel presented many times, but you have never fully embraced Christ. Or whether you're a Peter this morning, you followed after the Lord, but you realize that you've failed him in some way. Jesus is calling each of you, all of you, to follow him this morning on this Resurrection Sunday. And if you do, this, in fact, will turn out to be the greatest day of your life.
I've been doing a study in Romans with uh, Greg, my son-in-law was here, and Greg, it's been fantastic. But let me read from what we've already read, Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not share, uh, spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is, it, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Peter finished his sermon on... Pentecost Sunday, he said, or, or the, the report is, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call. So the call is to all of us today. And uh, I'm going to lead in a prayer momentarily. But if uh, there be somebody here this morning, you've never embraced Christ the risen Lord, uh, this is your moment. This could be the greatest day of your life. Or maybe you've been walking with the Lord, but uh, you uh, are like Peter, uh, and uh, you love the Lord, but you just want to, to recommit your life. You want to be recommissioned this morning. And uh, if you're going through some great sorrow, you, you just need a revelation of Christ like Mary did. So if, 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 there, if there's any like that, I'm just going to ask you to stand, and then I'm going to lead in a prayer. And if you're committing your life to Christ for the first time, uh, just come and talk to us afterwards as well. Is there anybody who would like to stand and you just want to have a recommissioning? You want to be fervent to give a defense for the gospel? You want to reach the Zen generation and every other generation? Uh, in fact, there's great news. There's uh, the Jesus Revolution movie is still playing. It's earned over $51 million. That doesn't mean anything, but it means that people are hungry to hear the, the, the news of Jesus. Uh, there was a revival at Wilmore, went to 60 campuses. Uh, God is moving, and we continue to believe for a great move in our country. So, Father, we thank you so much for Resurrection Sunday. 
We thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but you paid the price for our sins. You went to Calvary. You died the most incredible death. In fact, your own father turned his back on you for those three hours where you bore my sin, our sin, the sins of the world. And you spoke from the cross to Telestai, it is finished. I came, I did what I was to do, and it is all finished. And then the third day, you rose from the dead, and uh, everything is different because of it. Father, pray for any here this morning who have never fully embraced Christ, that they would do so today. I pray for those who sense they need a recommissioning, like Peter uh, experienced on the Sea of Galilee, that you would pour out your grace, your love, your mercy on them today, and they would be recharged as they leave this place. Those who are needing a revelation of Christ, maybe they're in a very deep and sorrowful place. Lord, we pray, even as you revealed yourself to Paul on the road to Damascus, that you would reveal yourself to them. We thank you for the Lord, that your word promises, seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. And uh, the words from Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Father, give us that heart. And we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.